Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25, Philip in Samaria. So let's read together. If, if you're here for the first time, the most important part of the message of the service is this message, because this is the word of God, and we believe it is God speaking to us. And so it's so important that we would listen to this word, we would pay attention to this word. So I invite you, if you have difficulties paying attention like I do, do whatever you have to to make yourself pay attention. Poke yourself in the head, you know, I don't know, pull your ear, you know, sit up straight, throw water in your face. But just, this is, this is so important. In, in a video era, in a, a five second per image era where we just have to be stimulated by something or we lose our attention, would you ask the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to ask God as well in a moment, to help you pay attention. There are forces that would want you not to pay attention. Your own flesh. I believe that Satan and his forces, the world system, everything is screaming at you, trying to drown out what you're about to hear. This is it. This is the bread of life. My, my, my calling is to read this word and then explain it to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your calling is to listen attentively and ask God to help you apply it. That's, that's, we all get to do that together. So listen, and if you don't have a Bible, get one. I, we used to have some on the table there. If not, we'll get some more. Lean over, sit next to someone with a Bible. Open it, like Bentley said last week, and don't just read it when I'm reading and then close it, but have it open and mark it and think about it and pray about it as you're listening. All right, so Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. It's the title here in my Bible. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Note the contrast. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But, whenever you see that contraction there, but, that's a contrast. Pay attention to those contrasts. They're going to tell you a lot about how to read the Bible and understand what's being said. But, verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 25, a summary verse. Now, when they, Peter, John, probably Philip as well, probably just Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Lord, this is a cataclysmic verse, series of verses. This is a turning point in your history of redemption. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. Oh, Lord, help us to understand it. Lord, may your burden, may your desire for us to be a people who worship you and who are on mission with the gospel, may that be fulfilled. Lord, keep us from distractions this morning. Lord, help us to listen, pay attention. Even as the Samaritans paid attention to Philip's word, may we pay attention to your word now. And may it change us as it changed them. Oh God, that we would be your people. Jesus, you are still speaking. You are still acting. You, the risen Lord Jesus, are still speaking and acting through your people. Back then and today through us. Oh, we pray this, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit you've given to us. Amen. And amen. The title of this message is Philip in Samaria. So here's the question. What is Philip doing in Samaria? Well, recall from last week Bentley's message in Acts 7, 54 to 8, 3, that the reigning Lord Jesus oversees the stoning of Stephen and the scattering of the church out from Jerusalem. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of Christians are fleeing for their lives as Saul is hunting them down door to door like animals and bringing them to trial and executing some of them. I was just reading the recent World Magazine and every year they give out a Daniel Award for Believers who stand up in the face of opposition and even death and proclaim Christ. And this year's Daniel Award goes to China's outspoken imprisoned Christians and their long-suffering, long-distance families. And I think we have not been called to endure this, but many in China have in other countries. And many of these pastors are in prison. They were literally taken out of their homes. That's what Saul was doing here. One of those Christians is Philip. 
And God chooses to focus the camera of redemptive history as we are given it here in the Bible on Philip. Why? Because Philip was a servant. Do you remember that Philip, along with Stephen, was one of the seven Greek-speaking Jews who were asked to serve tables? Actually, they were asked to give food to widows back in Acts 6. So here's Stephen, excuse me, Philip. He's a servant. And we kind of focus down in on Philip, who had been serving the church by waiting tables and giving food to widows. And now, now, Philip is going to continue to serve the church by proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. What's Philip doing? Here's the answer. Philip was on mission with the gospel in Samaria. That's what Philip was doing. He's on mission with the gospel in Samaria. Do you remember the mission? Do you remember the mission statement? Where is the mission statement in Acts found? In 1.8. Let's read it. Acts 1.8 says the following. Here is the mission statement. You want to know the mission? Here's the mission statement given by the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. He says to his disciples, to his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Philip is on mission into Samaria. He got the mission statement from Jesus. He's going to Samaria. And in going into Samaria, Philip, along with Stephen, are considered the founders, or not the founders, Jesus is the founders, but key players in this greater mission to the Gentile world. Because Christianity had been basically in Jerusalem with Jewish people who were converted. And now, for the first time, it's going to start moving out from Jerusalem and Judea, and it's going to go to Samaria. And Philip's on mission with the gospel at a key event, a key time in the history of redemption. Oh, friends, this is so key. These verses provide us with the transition in the book of Acts. So note that. Acts 1.1 through 8.1, or maybe 7 uh, at the end of chapter 7, is sort of one section of Acts. And now we're beginning a new section of Acts. The mission is expanding. It's going to Samaria. Key transition. A key moment in the history of redemption. Now, on Friday, December 7th, we commemorated the 71st anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. During the commemoration ceremony there in Pearl Harbor on Friday, the following was uttered. Quote, let us remember that this is where it all began. Let us remember that the arc of history was bent at this place 71 years ago. The arc of history was bent at this place 71 years ago. Oh yes, the arc, the arc of history was bent in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. By all accounts, that event that day woke up what was then the sleeping giant of America. She then declared war on the Axis powers, Japan and Germany, Italy. She helped defeat those Axis powers and many would say, launched America into its current role as a world leader. But, oh, friends, 
The arc of redemptive history was bent by the hand of God 2,000 years ago when Philip went to Samaria. Far more important history. Because it is in these events that the, that the gospel mission is now moving out from being primarily Jewish to Samaria and to the end of the world, is what that passage in Acts 1.8 said. Philip is on mission with the gospel. He's on mission with the gospel. He was a key part of this gospel mission to the Samaritans. And now here's the question I have to ask you. Are you on mission with the gospel in South Florida? Philip was on mission with the gospel in Samaria. That's great, 2,000 years ago. But are we, are we church, on mission with the gospel in South Florida? Philip wasn't just wandering around. Hey, gee, where can I go next? I'm running for my life. No, the commander-in-chief, the risen Lord Jesus, sent Philip to Samaria on mission with the gospel. And he's sending us on mission with the gospel today, church. This is what this passage is all about. This passage is about being on mission with the gospel. It's about proclaiming Jesus Christ. Look how it starts. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And look how it ends. Verse 25. Now when they had testified, speaking of Peter and John, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This, this is God's people, apostles, just servants like Philip, on mission with the gospel. The emphasis is on gospel proclamation. The preaching of Christ to the Samaritans. Did you know that the Samaritans had a hope of a Messiah? Christ is another word for Messiah. Philip's going to preach the Messiah to the Samaritans. So gospel mission, evangelism, is the main point here. Evangelism to people that that, that are despised and looked down upon. People on the margins... The Samaritans were considered by the Jews as heretics, half-breeds. You see, the Samaritans and those in Jerusalem had been at odds for about a thousand years. How's that for a conflict, huh? thousand years. It happened right after King Solomon's reign ended. And the united kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes split. And two of the tribes in the south remained faithful to the house of David. Remember the promise of Messiah was through the house of David. And the capital was Jerusalem. And then ten tribes in the north abandoned them, set up their own kingdom, and guess where their capital was? Samaria. Not only was their capital in Samaria, but To spite the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans built a temple in Samaria to rival the temple in Jerusalem on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was about maybe 40 miles north of Jerusalem. If you got in your car from right here and drove to Boca and stopped and had a little frappuccino foo-foo drink up there in Boca, you would be about as far as the temple in Samaria is from Jerusalem. So you've got the kingdom divided, a temple in Jerusalem, a temple in Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans. And for all these years, they've hated each other. The Jews consider the Samaritans basically half-breeds. Here's why. In 722 BC, 
God judged Samaria for its idolatry and wiped them out using the Assyrians. And the land was repopulated, but with people that had intermarried with pagans. In fact, some people would see the northern tribes as the lost sheep of of Israel. The Jews in Jerusalem looked down their nose at the Samaritans. They would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. That's the people to whom the commander-in-chief Jesus sent Philip. That's the people that Peter and John went to all their villages, maybe 140 villages, afterwards and preached the gospel. Gospel mission to the despised and the marginalized and the people we look down our noses at. Are we on that mission? Let's peek in on an interaction that Jesus had with someone from Samaria. On the screen, I believe you'll see John 4, 19 to 20. And as we peek in on this conversation, we're going to see that the issue, though evangelism is the main point, the issue is worship. Because the goal of evangelism is worship. Listen now to Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman at the well. We're breaking in on their conversation. This is what she says to Jesus in John 4, 19. There it is. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, listen carefully. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She was probably thinking right near Mount Gerizim, 40 miles north of Jerusalem where there was a temple. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. She's just regurgitating the the ages-long, centuries-long conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. The issue was worship. Where will the true people of God worship the true God? And listen to how Jesus answered her. John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, in Samaria, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now Here, kingdom of God has arrived because the king is speaking. When the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. See, the Samaritans had a hope of Messiah as well as the Jews. I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, a lowly, adulterous, Samaritan woman, Jesus goes to the despised and reveals himself. Amazing passage. And he says, I who speak to you am he. Friends, Jesus, the resurrected, reigning Jesus, sends Philip on mission to tell the Samaritans, hey, it's here, it's done, now's the time. And Philip's on mission. Declaring Jesus as the Christ. That's what it says here in the passage. Look again. Look at chapter five, uh, verse 5b. He proclaimed to them the Christ. Even as Jesus declared that the hour is coming and now is here, that you're not going to worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria, but you will worship God in me. And as Stephen declared to the elders of Israel just last chapter that you no longer worship God in that temple right there in Jerusalem, but in Christ, and they killed him for it. So Philip now is declaring to the Samaritan, you do not worship God at that mountain with your idolatrous worship, but you worship God in Jesus 
Christ. Philip proclaims Jesus. He's on mission. He's evangelizing the Samaritans with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's he doing? He's calling them to turn from their idolatrous worship of false gods. We're going to talk about this guy, Simon the Magician. What's up with that? I'm great God. And they were amazed by this guy. They used to pay attention to this guy. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He's calling them to true worship. Evangelism, listen, is not an end in and of itself. Evangelism, gospel mission, is a means to a greater end. And that greater end is the worship of God. You're here to worship God. You need to be here to worship God. Christianity isn't just some ticket to heaven to avoid hell. It's not some mental ascent to feel you know, sentimental about on, d- during Christmas time. No, no. God says, worship me. To that end, Burke Parsons, who's the editor of Table Talk magazine for Ligonier Ministry, has a great quote in an article on evangelism for God's glory. Here we go. So let's listen to old Burke as he speaks to us. To borrow a theme from John Piper's classic book, Let the Nations Be Glad, good book to read for evangelism. Evangelism isn't the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Amen. Worship is ultimate, not evangelism. Evangelism isn't the end, but a means to the end, which is God's glorious rescue of his people to know him truly, worship him purely, enjoy him fully, and glorify him eternally. That's what Philip is doing. He's on mission with the gospel in Samaria. We evangelize in order that God might gather for himself worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his glory. Evangelism is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. There won't be evangelism in the new heavens and new earth. There'll be worship. No more evangelism. No need for it. Oh, friends, are we on mission with the gospel in South Florida? Do we see the the, the privilege and the joy and the excitement it is of calling people to worship God and Jesus Christ? Not just to clean up their act. Not just something they add to their life so they'll be happy and nice and prosperous and solve all their problems. No, I mean, those things are benefits and I, I certainly want that for everyone. No, no, but we just say, worship God in Jesus. That is what Luke excuse me, Philip was doing in Samaria. He was calling the Samaritans to worship God. He could not change their idolatrous hearts, but God could and would through his proclamation of Jesus. That's how God set it up. The risen Lord Jesus continues to teach and preach and act through his disciples. Philip, on mission with the gospel in Samaria. So what did Philip do? Well, let's, look, let's read it again. Pretty exciting stuff. This was a, a, an amazing mission. Look at verse 4 again of Acts 8. Now, to those who were scattered went, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in the city. God enabled Philip 
to preach boldly and God extended his hand to do signs and wonders as Philip preached the word. Philip preached the coming of the kingdom of God. Philip preached that Jesus is the king and then the king began to do things, amazing things, similar things to what Jesus did when he was on earth, similar things to what the apostles did when they were preaching in Jerusalem. But the difference is Philip now, he's not an apostle. He's just a servant like you and me. I think Philip was probably there when the, when the disciples prayed the following prayer. Acts 4, 29 to 30. <clears throat> they prayed this prayer after the apostles were incarcerated and threatened by the Jewish leaders. And look, look what they prayed. Acts 4, 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Philip's experiencing the answer to that prayer right here in Samaria. And we can experience the answer to that prayer in South Florida. Philip is preaching, man. He's proclaiming the word of God. Look look what he says. Of course, we've already seen in verse 5, he's proclaiming the Christ to them. Look at verse 12. Look what he proclaims to them there in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, euangelizomenoi, say that twice, is, 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 the, is the Greek word, we get the euangelion, we, you, you hear the word evangelism there, you, 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 you hear, this, I, this, it's a beautiful word, it's, it's preaching the good news, it's the full-orbed, full counsel of God, it's, it's, it's biblical theology, it's, it's, it's the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, it's Jesus from the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus everywhere, the fulfillment of everything, it's radical, it's powerful. If you're here this morning and you've perhaps not known that message, it's Jesus who's the Messiah, who was crucified on a cross. Remember, Peter is telling the elders, you killed him. But then Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, the one you killed, God raised from the dead, whom God exalted to his right hand. Stephen just died for preaching that gospel. I see Jesus, the Son of Man, at the right hand of the Father. They rushed at him like wild animals and killed him, stoned him to death. This is what Philip's preaching. It's what we preach. And it's what you need to hear if you have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus. He's calling you to worship. Worship God in Jesus. Repent. Believe. It is the universal call. God's elect will answer. But it is a call to you. Listen Pay attention. He's speaking today through an imperfect vessel, but he's speaking to you. Oh, unbeliever friend, pay attention. Repent. And believer, brother and sister, we can do this. As Bentley said last week in his message, it's the same Holy Spirit that filled the Greek-speaking Jew, Stephen, who was not an apostle but a servant. The same Holy Spirit is, is filling the Greek-speaking Jew, Philip. And we as well, though we're not Greek-speaking, at least most of us aren't, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. That prayer at Acts 4, it applies to us. I was trying to think of an illustration of someone who's a servant and an evangelist, because that's what Philip is. He's a servant and evangelist. And I, I thought of my wife, Desiree. Isn't Desiree wonderful? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Sorry, honey. Shouldn't have done that, but I had to because you are. You make my life an absolute dream. I, I love living with you every day of my life. So, sweet Desi, right? <laughs> Quiet Desi. But I was thinking, this is an example of someone filled with the Spirit like Philip. Let me explain. Uh, recently, you all know my mom had an accident and she's been handicapped somewhat, although my mom's an amazing woman as well. Pretty soon she's going to be running a half marathon, I think, with her cane, hitting people, trying to help her. But, uh, uh, so, so Desi serves mom. And one of the ways that Desi serves mom is that they, they go to the Y and they have a workout deal for the, for the elderly. And Desi goes and, and participates. She works out as well with others on different days, but she goes with mom. And, and recently Desi was telling me that... Uh, um, they're going to have a, a, a potluck-type dinner on Friday. And she was saying, I'm praying about, we're talking about perhaps us going and just sharing with them the gospel, just, just befriending them. Uh, and, and this is a world where, where Desi would stand out as being very different. You understand what I'm saying? South Florida, right? In fact, so different that it, it's mostly a Hispanic world that my understanding is that, because Cindy works out there as well, they think Desi and Cindy are sisters, because they stand out from everybody else there. You understand what I'm saying here? <laughs> and I'm just laughing, you know. Uh, in Samaria, in a place where she's different, she's praying, Lord, fill me with your spirit to be a servant and to be an evangelist. I think God wants to do that with all of us. I, I think he does. I mean, listen, some amazing things happen with Philip. I mean, we can read about it. Demons were cast out. People were healed. I'm not saying that's going to be the norm for all of us. Nor am I saying that God can't do that. It's up to God. But we need to proclaim the gospel and believe that God is working through us. That's the mission. Don't you see? Look, look, look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Whether someone was set free from the bondage of demon possession or set free from the bondage of of things that they're doing that are horrible or just miserable, angry people or someone is is, is healed who was lame and physically sick, this, the kingdom of God is breaking in. It's here. It's been inaugurated. And there's joy in the city. Oh, friends, may there be joy in this city as we proclaim the gospel, as we're on gospel mission. People, people apart from the gospel are miserable. We were miserable. Let's share the joy we've been given in Christ with those around us. And what a contrast, isn't it, church? The joy with which this despised Samaritan city received the gospel compared to how Jerusalem received it just a chapter earlier. I mean, Jerusalem and the elders there They didn't receive it with joy. They rejected it with rage. They fell upon Stephen. They killed him. Oh, again, unbelieving friend, if you're here, please do not reject this message. If God gives you over to your sin, the end is grief and sadness and ultimately eternal judgment, which we all richly deserve. 
But if you're here and you're hearing my voice, oh, receive it like the Samaritans did. It will bring you joy. I'm not saying you're going to be happy every day. All your problems are going to be done. No, but you're going to fall down and worship at the feet of Jesus. You're going to do what you were created to do before this whole thing began. You're going to do what God has called all of us to do, and that's worship him. And it will be hard at times. But there's a deep abiding joy that nothing, nothing can give. Both now and forevermore. On mission with the gospel. On mission with the gospel that people might worship God. So let's ask ourselves a question. Did the Samaritans just rejoice because some got healed? And Philip was a a superior sideshow than this magician called Simon? Or did they really, really worship the Lord? Point two, how did the Samaritans respond to Philip's proclamation of Jesus? How did the Samaritans respond to Philip's proclamation of Jesus? Well, briefly, by way of quick review, and I want us to look at these verses, there were five ways that they responded. First, look at verse six, they paid attention. See that? And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. That's a lot of people, probably in the region of Samaria. They paid attention. Look at verse 12a. They believed. Verse 12a, we already read it. But when they believed Philip, they believed. And then 12b, as he preached good news in the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then... Verse 14, they received the word of God. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, very same language as is spoken of when Peter preached in Acts 2 to the Jews in Jerusalem, they received the word of God. They received the preaching of Peter um, during that day of Pentecost, on that day of Pentecost. And then verse 17, amazing here, joy unspeakable, they received the Holy Spirit. Then they laid their hands on them, they being Peter and John, and they, the Samaritans, received the Holy Spirit. Now, the question we must ask ourselves as we read this scripture is, why is Simon so prominent from verses 9 to 24? Why is a magician so prominent in these verses? And there is some discussion about that amongst scholars. And so, um, I think this first point's clear, everybody agrees upon. Simon is used here as a contrast. He's used here to show us that the Samaritans did repent, and they did believe, and they were converted. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Look at verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him. That's the second time they mentioned paying attention to Simon. Remember earlier they paid attention to Philip. I think what's happening here is that we're seeing, God is showing us that they used to be idolaters, worshiping false gods, being amazed and paying attention to this charlatan Simon who's a magician. But now when the gospel comes, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And then we see in verse 
13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and, being, and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So I think what God is doing with this little section here with Simon is saying, look, this is true conversion. This is the power of the gospel coming against Simon the magician, coming against people who were despised, coming against traditions that are wrong and false God worship, and it turns them into those who worship God. The one who used to amaze is now amazed. It's the power of the gospel for salvation. So they paid attention. They believed. They believed. That is something only God can give us. I pray you believe. And they were baptized. They were baptized. They, 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 They submitted their lives to God. Baptism back then was a big deal, bigger deal than it is now. When you're baptized, basically speaking of ownership, I belong to this one. You have to repent. Something was wrong with you. It was a, it was a big deal, much bigger deal than it is today, particularly in that culture. A Jew is coming to preach to them about another Jew who died and rose again and claims to be Messiah, and they're saying, you know what? God has given... We believe. We believe. We're Samaritans. We hate you guys. We wouldn't believe you if you said the sky was blue. We'd say it's orange. We would just, orange and blue. We would just argue about it onward and onward. But, but God is here. Jesus Christ, we believe he's Messiah. That's a miracle, folks. That's a greater miracle than all the other things that we see here. And that can happen today, friends. When we preach, proclaim, testify, when we're on gospel mission... We've got to speak it, and then God will move. So not only did they pay attention, not only did they believe, not only were they baptized, but because they received the word of God, verse 14, much like the people in in Acts 2 received the word of God on the day of Pentecost, then verse 17, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. It's interesting, Peter and John are in Jerusalem, 40 miles away, They hear that there's a great revival in Samaria. People are repenting, they're believing, they're being baptized. They are sent to go down to Samaria. I find this very funny. But did did you know that John, at one point in his career as an apprentice uh, evangelist apostle, uh, at one point, I think it's in Luke 9, basically said, Lord, would you please call fire down from heaven and destroy that Samaritan village? (laughs) So I find it very funny that God sends... John, who has an opinion about the Samaritans, and when he sees the hand of God, when we see the hand of God changing people that we thought were inferior or we didn't like because of whatever, and we see the hand of God, oh, it changes everything. That's why the church should be filled with every tribe and tongue and nation and socioeconomic status. Oh, friends. They send these guys down there and they lay their hands on them and God pours out the Spirit upon them. So the question is, is this event descriptive or prescriptive? That is to say, is this event simply describing a unique, redemptive, historical point or is it prescriptive? Is this kind of how it happens? You are saved, you are baptized, and then subsequent to that, you are filled with the Holy Spirit or you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that it is prescriptive. I do not believe this is the pattern today. I believe it's descriptive. Let me tell you why. 
I believe in redemptive history, what we have here is what I would call a a Samaritan Pentecost. We're going to have a similar Pentecost when Cornelius, a Roman centurion, hears the gospel from Peter and is filled with the Holy Spirit and God does miracles there. And we're going to have a similar Ephesian Pentecost when the Ephesian believers, having heard the gospel in in Acts chapter 19, are then subsequently prayed for the Spirit to come upon him. Here's what's happening. I believe that God is highlighting for us that the Spirit, that the kingdom of God is for all peoples. Not every single person, but all kinds of people. It's no longer a Jewish thing. So you had the Jewish Pentecost, and very similarly to the Jewish Pentecost in Jerusalem, after the the, the preaching of no longer do you worship God in this temple, but you worship God in Jesus, and they repent and believe and receive the word, now you have a Samaritan Pentecost. You no longer worship at the temple of Mount Gerizim. You no longer worship your little false idols, Simon the Magician, all that other stuff that people do. I mean, it just reminds me of like horoscope stuff on Spanish TV, you know? What was the name of that guy? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sad you guys know that so quickly. What are the Ten Commandments? Who's that guy? Walter Mercado. Just kidding. Relax. Take it easy. But, but even today, we, just, we give ourselves such foolishness. And God opens our eyes and changes our hearts. And we repent and we believe. So what, what, what's being shown here is that God is saving and including the despised Samaritans into his kingdom because he's giving them the spirit like he did, like he gave the spirit to the Jews in Jerusalem. Same with Cornelius when Peter preaches the gospel to him in Acts 10. Same for the Ephesians when uh, they received the spirit in Ephesians 19. Friends, here's the good news. After a thousand years of separation, God reunites the kingdom of Israel, the new Israel, with the house of David now, is reunited with the ten northern tribes under the new king Jesus, and they are now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's good news. Had to happen. That's why the mission statement was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the earth. So the Samaritans aren't quite Gentiles, but they they certainly weren't considered Jews. But God unites his people in Jesus. No longer Jerusalem, no longer Gerizim, but Jesus is where we worship. And I could end right there in this sermon, but I'm not going to. But that would be a good place to. But I've got to talk about the curious case of Simon wanting to buy the gift of God. Don't really want to, but I'm going to, because I'm faithful to the word. All right, let's look at verse 18. So this wonderful stuff happens, and now you find Simon, verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Simon, obviously, is impressed by the miracles he's seen through Philip. He's impressed by whatever happened when the Spirit came upon the Samaritans. We don't know. We're silent. But something happened. He's just impressed that things have changed. Things have changed around here. 
And he sees that Peter and John seem to have that power to lay their hands on people, and something happens. Their lives change. Something goes on. Well, he's a magician, right? He's always looking to kind of apply his craft. Now, here's the controversial part. Is he a believer? Now, there's, there's differences here. I, I think he is. I think he is, but I think he's a believer. Now, now note, number one, he's a recent convert. And, you know, he was a magician, so kind of cut him a little slack here. He's trying to repent of his magician ways. What I think he's trying to do is manipulate God. Right? Because, because magic is trying to manipulate the spiritual forces. Okay? So I think he's trying to manipulate God, and I think he's jealous uh, of Philip and maybe Peter and John. Because before, he was the one called great. He was the one they all worshipped. And now, they're worshipping Jesus. And he's seeing Peter and John and Philip doing these amazing things. Now, why do I say that? Okay, take a look. First of all, believed means believed, both in Greek and English. So, I have a hard time getting by the fact that it says he believed. All right? Number two, look what Peter says to him. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. All right, so that's a curse. That's a serious curse, serious consequences. But look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. I don't think he's saying you don't have part or lot in Christianity. He's saying you're not an apostle. You don't have part or lot in this matter. You're trying to buy, first of all, you're wrong in what you're doing, but you're trying to buy something. God hasn't ordained that for you. Your heart's not right before God. And then look what he says. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I think the Greek there says that there is a possibility for him to pray and the Lord would forgive him of that. Now look at 23. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. If you look at that, it speaks of jealousy and the bond of iniquity. It's like a poison. If you remember Dr. Krabendam talked about our hearts being poisonous, the flesh, we're ongoingly having to, to deal with that. And even his prayer, again, it depends on how you interpret what Simon says in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord. Some say that was sarcastic. You pray for me, I don't care about you. I would, I would agree with that interpretation because of the other, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I think he's, he's sincerely being corrected and rebuked. And I think that his attitude is a serious poison to the church. And I think that he must be corrected or rebuked. But listen, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, we don't read that he just fell down dead, do we? <laughs> so he seems to be given an opportunity to repent. Now here's the takeaway. So Al, why is this in here? Here's why I think this is in here. Because God wants us to know that you cannot buy his gifts And you cannot manipulate him. You can only receive God's gifts with thankful and repentant hearts. Now I want to go slowly here because I know what I'm about to say can touch some in unique ways. But I believe that there are some of us that do try to manipulate God. And I believe what the Lord wants you to know is that he doesn't owe you anything. So our bad attitudes, our stomping of our feet, our yelling, screaming, our attempts to manipulate God to get what we want, he's patient with us. But we must repent. 
because it arises out of a heart with bad intentions. Jesus isn't Lord. I'm Lord, and I just use Jesus to get what I want. It's the essence of magic. And God says you can't do that. You can only repent and thankfully receive. We're not being honest with God. That's what it says when your heart, it says your heart's not right. We're filled with bitter jealousy at what others have, as perhaps Simon was, jealous of Philip, Peter, and John. I've wrestled with that. If I could, if I could just be totally honest with you, I, I, I've at times looked at another man's ministry, another man's ministry in the city, and wrongly gauged from results and been jealous in my heart. And, and then argued with God. What, what, why don't I see those results? By the way, I'm so happy with the results. I love you. I love being here. I, I wouldn't want to do anything else in my life. But you know how we are as people, right? We're always looking over at the next place. Man, that's wrong. And God's calling me to repent. Because I can't manipulate God. I can't earn his gifts or buy them. So I think that's what's happening here. And I think that God wants us to be on mission for him with the gospel. Leave the results up to him. Rejoice at the gospel mission in this city as it moves forward. And it's just exciting. And go to Christmas near the beach this Saturday and faithfully preach the gospel and see what God's going to do. I'm on mission with the gospel in South Florida. And that's what we see in verse 25 to conclude. Verse 25, man, these guys are on mission. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, that's Peter and John, they probably stayed in Samaria for a while. Whatever city they were in, some say it was a city called Shechem or Sebastos, which is one of the capital cities. Who knows? The region. Okay, And they were just discipling people and they were teaching people. And Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, continues to teach and disciple people through his apostles and disciples. And that's happening in Samaria. And it's happening wonderfully. And the gospel mission is moving forward. And then they return to Jerusalem. The 40 miles back to Jerusalem, about a two or three day journey. For them, it might have been a two or three week journey. Why? Because it says in verse 25 that they preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Some say there were 140 villages in that area. So these two Jewish men who in the past had despised the Samaritans, they would avoid Samaria. Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would take this long way around Samaria. They're walking through Samaria preaching Jesus. May we do that, church. Calling them to worship the only true God. Testifying of Jesus. Oh, church, may we be on mission with the gospel in South Florida. May we call others to worship Jesus this Christmas season. I think about the Samaritans. They used to be amazed by Simon the Magician and all of his tricks. They used to pay attention to Simon the Magician who says he was the great, the God, the great one, the God. And when the gospel came, they were amazed now by Jesus Christ. What amazes you right now, friend? 
What do you pay attention? To what do you pay attention, friend? Are you amazed by the lights? They are but a reflection of the light that Jesus came and and does bring. Are you amazed by the gifts? They are but a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father gives those who repent and have faith in Jesus Christ. Are you amazed by the food and the festivities and the festive gatherings this Christmas? Oh, they are but a foretaste of the final festive gathering when Jesus returns the new heavens and the new earth and we celebrate it with Him. Let's not, be, let's not settle for an amazement in the things of this world, but rather let us demand to be amazed by that which transcends this world. Let us be amazed by the one who truly is amazing. Let us be on mission for the gospel to call others to worship him. The issue is worship. The Jews made the temple an idol and thought one should worship in Jerusalem. The Samaritans made Mount Garrison and the temple there an idol and found themselves worshiping pagan gods represented by magicians. But the reigning Lord Jesus sends Philip to call them and to call us to worship Jesus. He alone is the only one worthy to be worshipped by Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. God is calling us to true worship, church. Will we come to Jesus and adore him as true worshipers and allow him, obey him and be on mission, his mission, that he speaks through us and acts through us this Christmas season in our homes, in our families, in our workplace at Christmas near the beach. Will we come and adore him? Yes, even at Young Circle in Hollywood, Saturday night, 5.30. Let us come and adore him. Please bow your heads. Worship team, come on up. Father, I pray that you would grab our hearts right now, that you would have our attentions, Lord, that our thoughts would be focused on you, Lord. Lord, where we've been amazed by things of this world that are mere shadows of you, forgive us. When Simon the magicians of our time and error have amazed us with their tricks and magical things, oh Lord, forgive us. When we've been amazed by things that are meant to point to you and fail to hardly think of you, Forgive us. And right now as a church, we just want to come and adore you. We just, we just want to say, Lord Jesus, our focus is on you right now. That we'll give you all the glory. That we'll reject the glory of man, which is a shadow, a pale, awful, dirty reflection of your pure glory. Give us courage, Lord. Lord, I pray that prayer in Acts 4.29. Lord, give us boldness that we might proclaim your word in every place you put us. And extend your hand, Lord, to save and heal and deliver. Oh, Lord, may this city rejoice at the coming of their king. You are the king of this city. Whether we bow our knee to you now, everyone will bow their knee to you then. But may you have mercy upon us. We're a needy city, needy needy region. May we adore you now together as a church in Jesus' name.